0: Time for our regular discussion with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking on CFAX 1070. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Oh, you know, just another day in COVID-19. I'm trying to uh, climatize myself to the feeling of wearing a mask over my face. I find it a profoundly uncomfortable state of affairs. Nevertheless, it's certainly not a large sacrifice any person has to make. And I know we're wearing masks uh, more so around here at work as well as elsewhere. And I know that uh, the justice system is trying to figure out how to best accommodate the
1: requirements for physical distancing. Are we doing
0: jury trials yet? What's the status of that?
1: Well, that's a great question. Uh, the the justice system has been making all kinds of accommodations to get uh, everything possible back up and running. Um, the Court of Appeal has been functioning with uh, Zoom hearings uh, virtually from the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, the provincial court has been dealing with uh, sentencings by telephone and conferences using MS Teams. Um, and in the B.C. Supreme Court, at least for trials not involving Uh, juries, uh, things have been back up and functioning. Uh, Not at perhaps full capacity, but uh, trials are going on and accommodations are being made with things like uh, having witnesses testify by uh, video. Uh, They've modified uh, courtrooms, putting up plexiglass barriers between counsel and for the court clerk and so on. Um, And so uh, many of the court functions are now able to Uh, proceed, if in in a modified uh, way. Uh, The most challenging aspect so far, I think, for the justice system has been uh, dealing with the issue of jury trials, Uh, and they present a number of really special challenges. Um, Some cases, criminal cases, are required uh, to have a jury trial unless uh, both the accused and the Crown uh, agree uh, to only have a judge. Uh, for example, a murder trial uh, must have a jury unless both sides agreed to do otherwise. Uh, and for a variety of reasons, one or other or both of them might say, no, I wish to have a jury, and so that's what has to occur. Um, and there are a number of challenges with that. Um, and uh, one of those, it, I should say, it starts with the process of how we select a jury, uh, which I think many people may have only been on the receiving end of uh, in their life, uh, and the way that works is that the in British Columbia we have a sheriff service which is responsible for a number of things, including security at the courthouse uh, and managing juries. Those are two of their core functions. Uh-huh. Uh, and what would happen is that the sheriff service would send out jury notices to people. You may have gotten one in the mail um, advising you that you're required to attend to be a, on a panel to potentially serve on a jury. But what ordinarily would happen is they would send out hundreds of these notices to collect up a sufficient jury pool from which one or more juries can actually be selected. Yes. Uh, it wouldn't work if you just sent out twelve notices and said you twelve must show up. Uh, all kinds of things happen, right? Turns out the uh, you know, accused person knows the jury or a juror or the juror can't serve for some reason. And so you need a larger pool to get down to the twelve. But it pretty obviously isn't going to be satisfactory to have 300 people all march into the courthouse and sit shoulder-to-shoulder in the hallway, which is what would ordinarily happen. So what do we do with that? Uh, And the notice that was released yesterday uh, from the Associate Chief Justice of the B.C. Supreme Court, which is where jury trials run in the Supreme Court here, has set out a new uh, process uh, whereby jury trials are going to resume on September the 8th, uh, and it is set out how we're going to try to do that. And they're, for jury selection, is going to try to do this. They're going to try to send out those notices, and then have uh, counsel and the accused and so on show up. And the court clerk would draw uh, numbers, jury numbers, randomly out of a box, which is what would ordinarily happen with all these people sitting in the hallway. But they would do that before the big group of people would show up, and then they would form smaller sort of pods or groups of maybe 15 or so people who would be asked to come at different times, and the plan is to do it on Saturdays uh, when there would be fewer people in the uh, courthouse, and the idea would be you would have one of these smaller groupings that's been randomly selected coming on a Saturday, and then you would start going through those people to get jurors for each of the trials that's set to go. Um, And the the idea is if you didn't get enough out of the first group of 15 or so, the next group would show up, you know, half an hour later or something, and you would just keep going until you got to the required number. So that's the first complexity is dealing with how do you get the jury selected. Now, once you've got them selected, there are a number of other logistical challenges that immediately arise. Um, I just spent this morning up with a mask on, walking around looking at various courtrooms dealing with um, sort of feedback on how uh, courtrooms could be modified to make them safe for jurors. Um, And at the moment, of course, you've got these tiny little jury boxes where everyone would be squished in shoulder to shoulder, and that just can't work. Um, And you can do some things, like you could put up some plexiglass barriers, but, you know, it's going to be pretty hard to turn that into 12 tiny pods. That's probably unworkable. Jurors need to be able to hear the witness speak. So you have a problem if you have multiple layers of plexiglass between them. They need to be able to see the witnesses testify. The judge needs to be able to see and hear people testify. Uh, and so there's much work on at the moment trying to figure out, can we reconfigure the courtroom you know, using maybe the gallery or some additional space in some way that we could keep everyone either two meters apart or behind plexiglass so that they're not in danger? And what the Associate Chief Justice of the B.C. Supreme Court has decided is that uh, if it is not possible in some locations to come up with a a safe physical reconfiguration so everyone can be distanced or protected, it may be necessary to conduct jury trials uh, in a location other than uh, a courthouse, which is perfectly permitted. And so um, she has uh, suggested that in communities where the courthouse can't be modified to keep everyone safe, uh, that it may be that we wind up using community centers, hotels, uh, or other locations apart from courthouses so that everyone could be spread out. And I think what would be envisioned there would be something like a a large conference room or perhaps a lecture theater. uh, Or, um, you know, I think many years ago, it was, I think the Royal Theater was used for a mass trial. Uh, the Clackwire Sound uh, Trial. I think that was the Royal Theatre, if I'm not mistaken. Oh,
0: interesting. I'd forgotten about that. I do have a
1: faint memory. So that you know, maybe some facility like that, which isn't going to be running uh, ordinary uh, plays anytime soon, uh, could be uh, used for that purpose, and just have the jurors all sit, you know, ten seats apart from each other. Everyone would have a good view of the witness. Have them up on the stage, uh, or in some configuration like that. Um, And so there's going to be some, I think, real creativity used to try to keep everyone safe but allow these really important things to get going again. And I think everyone involved in this process, trying to get this uh, off the ground again, jury trials, is aware as well that we have to come up with something that is going to make the jurors comfortable such that they are prepared to serve, right? If, If you tell somebody... You know, you're sitting in this little plexiglass uh, capsule with a face shield on. I suspect you're going to have a lot of people saying, I don't feel safe <laughs> No. Uh, doing that. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it already is a large imposition for people asking them to serve in a, a jury. And so I think we need to come to an arrangement, wherever it might be physically, whereby people are going to not only be safe, but feel safe, Doing it right,
0: yes,
1: um, and so I think you need to make sure that people are safe and comfortable. And then the other element to it is that once the trial is finished and the jury's heard all of the evidence and instructions from the judge, they need to go and deliberate. And the current deliberation rooms are far too small for that to happen, yes. uh, and so you need a large private space where they can uh, have deliberations, and then other things that you might not immediately think of need to exist, like bathroom facilities, right? You don't want to have the jurors sort of wandering down the hallway chatting with somebody else about the case. You want to have a place where they can be together uh, privately uh, and have those basic facilities, sort of a place to go to the bathroom and some water to drink and so on. And so when we look for places or modify places, we need to make sure that those needs are taken care of as well. So I think we're in for some interesting times, but it's clear that the court is determined to find a way to make this work as we must Um, you know if we're somehow able to make uh, bars function um, surely on the hierarchy of uh, uh, social need uh, the uh, requirement to have jury trials function properly for people so that serious criminal matters can be properly tried uh, surely got to take some priority over uh, making sure everyone's got a you know fun place to uh, have a drink on the weekend. So if we can make one go, I think we've got to make the other go. uh, And uh, I think everyone involved is determined to come up with a way that we can do that that works, is safe, uh, and is going to make everyone in the process uh, feel that way so that they can comfortably participate. Interesting questions arise as to where the threshold may
0: exist, where discomfort a juror deals with while discharging his or her duties may compromise their judgment. Of course, their judgment is the reason that we have them there in the first place. What do you
1: think? I think you're right, right? You you just can't have somebody who's sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, am I going to get infected and die? Yes. Right? They need to be concentrating on uh, listening to the evidence so they can make a, a proper decision, and then just other basic things have to happen like they have to be able to clearly hear the person the witness testifying right so you know you can't have them sitting behind three layers of plexiglass you know 100 feet away or something they just won't be able to hear what's going on and so we have to meet those requirements so somebody feels safe will be prepared to participate as a juror uh, and then is able to do so uh, effectively hear the evidence Uh, and not be constantly distracted by, you know, being asked to put on a face shield and mask and uh, be in some little capsule or something, you know, it's already a a challenging uh, thing for people to do and it requires a good deal of concentration for people to pay attention to all the evidence so they can make uh, the correct decision. And so we, I think, just need to um, spend the money to uh, have facilities where that can happen. And if we can't do it at the courthouse, Uh, it does seem to me that we have a number of large, unused uh, facilities uh, around town uh, that we should take advantage of so that these cases can get back on track like we've been able to get uh, other cases back on track.
0: Agreed. Public confidence in the dispensation of justice must be upheld, whatever it takes. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment as Legally Speaking continues on CFAX 1070. Back to Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers as we continue to explore the latest news of the week in the justice system. Another interesting case here, Michael, or would we like to touch upon anything else with COVID-19
1: first? Well, this one actually has some flavor of that to it, interestingly. All right. Um, And so one of the other uh, cases which was just recently released uh, by the B.C. Supreme Court uh, deals with a topic that comes up with some frequency in practice which is the issue of well, you know when the police sees something from you, how long can they hold on to it, right? Yes. Uh, that doesn't arise infrequently. If somebody's saying, hey, the police seized such and such and nothing's happened, how long can they keep it for? Uh, well, uh, there is a scheme for that in the criminal code. And the way it works is this. If the police sees something uh, as possible evidence of an offense, like, for example, they get a search warrant, Uh, and they go and conduct a search and find something that they think might be evidence of a criminal offense, Uh, they are, first of all, required to uh, file a report with the uh, justice of the court registry of what they seized, right? Police in Canada can't just come and take things and secret them away. They've got a report upon it, right? Good, yes, and rightly so. They've got, hey, here's what you took, right? Uh, And then they are permitted to keep the things, but if they want to keep them for more than 90 days and no charge has been laid, right, nothing's happened yet, Yes. they would need to go back and ask a justice at the court registry for permission to keep them longer than 90 days. And they can go back and keep doing that several times, right, and say, I need more time, we're still investigating it, but we haven't charged the person. And the criminal code allows the police to go back uh, to a justice in the court registry, on multiple occasions always asking for up to 90 more days you know hey we're still investigating this we need more time but there's a limit and the limit is one year and once you get to one year if you still haven't charged somebody and you've taken things from them Uh the police would have to apply to a supreme court judge and explain why any more time should be given to them Um, and here's why that can be important A person has a right to a trial within a reasonable period of time. It's a constitutional right in Canada. And the Supreme Court of Canada has said that that reasonable time would ordinarily be either 18 or 30 months, depending on the type of case and where it's being tried. But that time limit doesn't start running until a person is actually charged with an offence. And so, for example, if the police came and, I don't know, seized your car and all of your money and uh, various things of yours and they were sort of contemplating charging you but hadn't done anything yet, you hadn't been charged, they'd just taken your things, that time limit for a trial within a reasonable time wouldn't even start running. Uh, And so we just can't have it go on forever where, you know, things that may be very important or necessary for you were just kind of secreted away, right? Um, And so the decision which just came out was one of those cases where the police had gone back again and again asking for more time from a justice when they were investigating uh, a case involving producing marijuana, contrary to the Cannabis Act, right? They'd seized a bunch of things as part of an investigation of that sort last summer, Uh and they still hadn't charged the person, and they'd gone back time and time again asking for more and more time from a justice, Uh, and eventually this thing wound up in Supreme Court where they were asking for even more time. Is
0: is there an expectation that Crown will know at the outset how much additional time it will need, or does it look uh, unfavorable when they come back and ask for extension after extension after extension?
1: Well, the the original asking for the 90 days from the justice of the peace um, is going to be a virtually administrative process. So if they're kind of... uh, stringing it along 90 days at a time for up to that first year that's going to be they're almost certainly going to get it if they're showing up saying oh we're still working on this investigation we need okay. more time that's going to go but once you get to a one, the one year mark uh-huh. it turns into a sort of the criminal code presumption seems to be well, this is a very long time you better get yourself in front of a supreme court judge and explain why you need even more time uh, before even charging a person okay. because once somebody is charged that's not the same kind of issue like if somebody's charged with robbing the bank, they can hang on to the alleged you know gun and mask <laughs> right yes. until the trial's all finished and the appeals finished and anything else that's not an issue. this is an issue though where you've seized something and you just haven't charged the person at all um, and so there's this scheme in place designed to both require uh, clear public reporting of what you've taken uh, and uh, there is a sort of judicial oversight of those things which becomes more stringent after a year um, to get the, you know, process moving and you if you don't want to have somebody's, you know, potentially things that can be very important to them, large sums of money or computer equipment, like this case involved uh, a bunch of marijuana but also computers and various other things that were seized. And so you can easily imagine how somebody would be, uh, you know, having a difficult time earning a living or doing other things if... Um, all of their equipment and so on had been uh, taken by the police and they hadn't even been charged with anything such that you'd have the ability to go to court and defend yourself or whatever you plan to do fascinating
0: we've got time for one more about five minutes left on the clock Uh, the happy buddha cannabis i had the pleasure of interviewing the two owners of this establishment earlier this week so i'm aware of their views on it but i'm very interested to hear your legal analysis
1: Yeah, this this was a a good case in addition to the Happy Buddha Cannabis proposed name. uh, And uh, for people that didn't listen to them earlier this week, this is a proposed cannabis store in Sydney. And the Sydney City Council has taken what appears to be, according to the judgment, um, a rather schizophrenic view of whether they're going to permit a marijuana store to be opened up in Sydney. They originally had legislation that said no marijuana stores, and then they changed it to allow marijuana stores, at least from a zoning perspective. But then what they did, and it's, I must say I can fully imagine how if you were the uh, proposed proprietor of uh, Happy Buddha Cannabis, you might be uh, pretty unhappy because the licensing scheme is principally operated by the province. You have to get a, a license from the province to be able to sell marijuana. And the legislation dealing with that requires uh, the um, Provincial Licensing Authority to consider um, submissions from a municipality. And the municipality is supposed to go out and canvass people that could be affected by that, you know, neighbours and so on, and then provide information to the Provincial Licensing Authority so they can decide whether to issue a license or not. Here, the Town of Sydney just didn't do that. Uh, They just didn't. Gather the information as they were required to do from people who might be affected by it and submit that to the provincial licensing authority. And then the way the provincial licensing authority operates is if they don't receive that information from the municipality, they just won't do anything. They won't issue the license. Huh. And so by inaction, it amount, uh, inaction on the part of the uh, Sydney, It meant that the uh, proposed proprietors were unable to proceed with their license application because the licensing authority didn't have the information required from the municipality, which is a pretty frustrating bureaucratic state of affairs uh, when somebody who doesn't want you to open the thing just says, well, we just won't give them any information at all, and that's the end of it. And so ultimately in this case, the judge uh, directed that that is a requirement. It's not optional. Um, and uh, found that the municipality's decision uh, not to gather the views of residents in the area uh, was unlawful. They were required to do that, um, and the um, judge directed that the municipality is uh, shall conduct the required public consultation uh, and fulfill its obligations to provide information uh, to the provincial licensing authority so they can actually make a decision one way or the other, right? It's just not fair to say, look, uh, by providing no information, we're going to absolutely stop any possibility of a uh, license being issued to you. So the the town of Sydney had its knuckles wrapped for doing that, uh, and presumably uh, now they will do what they are required to do so that the uh, provincial licensing authority can determine uh, whether uh, Happy Buddha Cannabis should uh, get the licenses asking for. And for the sake of the proprietors, I uh, I hope that they are successful because they've uh, decided to, according to the judgment, go out and take out a five-year lease on retail space without having the required license. So as the judge pointed out, they've taken a rather substantial risk by doing that, uh, but at least now, following this decision, uh, it'll be possible for there to be a, uh, a real decision made by the uh, Liquor and Cannabis Regulatory Branch about whether to issue a license uh, rather than having that process just halted uh, completely by the uh, decision on path of the uh, town of Sydney uh, not to do what they're required to do pursuant to the legislation fifty five
0: seconds left in our segment today Michael
1: uh, well the uh, I must say the the entire process in terms of the licensing for uh, this proposed cannabis store I think reveals um, The just the degree of uh, bureaucracy that we've layered on top of the sale of cannabis in the province. And ultimately, I think we need to bear in mind the purpose of legalizing marijuana was to discourage sort of underground criminal activity. And if you make it too difficult or too expensive to do it, we're not going to succeed in uh, getting that activity properly uh, regulated, taxed, and so on. Uh, You're just going to uh, continue to have people uh, growing the stuff in their basement. And I don't think that's really what any of us... uh, Uh, would desire. Indeed. Michael Mulligan,
0: thank you for your knowledge and insight as always. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Stay safe. You too. Thank you so much.